Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. Before we get into Genesis chapter 38, I, I want to read what um, the Haley Handbook says about this specific chapter. It says, this chapter is probably inserted because Jesus was born from the family line of Judah. All through the Bible, Jesus' family line is recorded, even when the people and events were not respectable. Okay, so we're going to see some instances where there's not good things happening, kind of ungodly, wicked things happening. So, um, you, you last left off where Joseph, um, well, we're talking about Joseph and his brothers want to um, kill him, but they don't kill him. And Judah speaks up and says, let's sell him as a, as a slave. So he's in the uh, last chapter. Um, then there's chapter 38, which seems like a break or a pause or, or a redirection or refocus. And then in chapter 39, it picks back up with Joseph as a slave. And, and he ends up in Potiphar's house. So, let's read verse 1. It says, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. So, this seems to be at the time where Joseph is in slavery. Okay, so as he's gone away, as they have sold Joseph off into slavery, now we have a story, a um, passage where it's talking about what's going on back at home. Judah leaves, he departs from his brothers, and he goes to um, the place of Adullam, and he... He, hang, he goes and hangs out with a character or a man named Hira, a friend he becomes. And um, Judah didn't really have any business going and going over here. There was no reason to. It doesn't tell us the exact reason other than he left. And while he's over there, he sees a Canaanite woman. In, in a few chapters back, well, quite a few, Abraham warns um, his servant not to get Isaac a Canaanite woman. He specifically tells him, don't get a Canaanite wife for my son. Um, find someone from my family, which it was okay back then to do. And there are many reasons. One of the biggest reasons was that the Canaanites practiced wicked stuff. Just tons of different... Um, just think of something like... Just think of the world, the, everything that the world esteems is basically what was the morals and standards of the Canaanites. They did not live for God. They lived for their own gods, their made-up gods. And so Abraham had warned his son Isaac. Um, Jacob was upset when Esau went ahead and took a Canaanite woman, if you remember that. So it's not a good thing, especially in the book of Genesis, when they take Canaanite wives. They're not supposed to be intermarried with them because they're going to be 
dragged down. They're going to be drug away from God and following after God. So, anyways, it says that there was a certain Canaanite woman whose name was Shua. And she married her, and he married her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he, and he called his name Ur. So that's the first son. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. That's the second son. And she conceived and yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezib when she bore him. Okay, so three sons we read right here. Verse 6. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Okay, her name was Tamar. She also was a Canaanite. So, is it good or bad that he's giving her a Canaanite wife? Good or bad? Bad, okay, good. Glad you guys are still awake. So, Judah gets a Canaanite wife, not supposed to. Then he says, hey, there's no big deal about this. I'll get my firstborn son a Canaanite wife, which is bad. It's not good. Judah should not have given his son to Tamar or Tamar to his son. And uh, a lot of times we see that Tamar gets a lot of blame of this chapter, but there's uh, multiple people that are involved in this. So Mary's off his son to Tamar, a Canaanite woman. Verse 7, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. <laughs> wow. That's the description of this man's life. He was wicked and God killed him because he was wicked. Oh, that's, that's sad. Um, I'm not going to make an excuse for Ur, but he was kind of not in the best environment. His father disobeyed. He wasn't really following God. His mother was a Canaanite, didn't know the ways of God, right? Wasn't, wasn't, um, taught the ways by Judah, as we're going to see, Judah is not very godly at all. But that doesn't give him an excuse for the wicked actions that he made, but he's just falling after, hey, my parents don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want, right? It doesn't tell us what the wicked actions that he did, but in God's eyes, it was displeasing. Um, there's a New Testament passage. It's in the book of Acts where if you remember this, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about how much money they have sold their property for and how much they're giving to the church. And um, the husband comes in first and P I believe it's Peter. He says, why are you lying to us? Why did you lie to us? Why are you trying to trick us? Why are you trying to lie to the Holy Spirit? And he says, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. And he falls dead. And the men, the men um, come and pick him up and, and take him out. And his wife come in, comes in and how much did you sell for? Oh, this much. No, you didn't. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're lying, trying to lie to God. She falls dead as well. And growing up reading that story, I'm like, wow, that's intense. You know, Just, what, a, a lie. And I mean, I've told a lie before, you know. Like, uh, uh, am I going to fall? Am I going to fall right now on, on the ground? And I, I believe it is written so that it can shock us. And also that it can comfort us. There's a, there's a beautiful verse. It's Lamentations 3, 22 and through 24. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. 
for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion, therefore I put my hope in him. And I think that the, the more shocking part is that we don't fall, you know. We, we just don't, you don't see people walking around just falling all the time every time they sin, right? Isn't that, isn't that uh, comforting that that doesn't happen? Of course, as, as um, Christians, right, we have the blood of Jesus to cover our sins. But there are many people who don't, and that's surprising that they don't. And sometimes we want to be like uh, James and John and call down fire and, sh- and lightning and strike down people. <laughs> but um, that's God's job, not ours. And Jesus made that clear. So Judas' first son, Er, dies. God kills him because he was wicked. doesn't tell us the exact reason, but he does. Verse 8. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise her up an heir to your brother. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass, when he went into his brother's wife, he admitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. So, let's go back to verse 8 real quick. Judah calls in his second son and he says, Take the responsibility, take um, really a privilege of providing for your sister-in-law a child. In this culture, women, if you did not, if your husband died, your widow, you are helpless, you are hopeless, you are on your own. No one's going to help you. Um, and we do read that her father's still alive, but since, since Judah has three sons, the first son died, which was Tamar's first husband. The second um, brother had the responsibility um, had the responsibility to take on Tamar, and that's why um, you, you might the question might come up: Why didn't the Tamar's father take care of her? Because he vowed to take care of by giving his first son. Judah is responsible for Tamar, not her father. She was out of her father's hands and now into um, Judah's family, obviously the first son. So that's why, because her, her, her father's still alive, but um, in this culture as well, women were basically treated like property. I could do whatever I'd like with this woman. She belongs to me. So she lost her husband, doesn't have any children, so no one's going provide, to provide for her, take care of her. And what is she supposed to do? Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, we are given a practice that is practiced right here and was culturally, culturally practiced in this time of the Leverite vow, where you go ahead and take, if you do have a brother and he dies, his wife and provide for her a child. So, let's go to verse 9. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. So, he has in his mind, he knows this child that I, if I'm to have a child with this woman, she won't be mine. Excuse me, the child won't be mine. Um, so when it came to pass, when he went to his brother's wife, he admitted on the ground lest he should give her an heir. 
So, some people think that this section right here, this verse, is saying that you can't plan a family. Um, um, plan for the future. Um, but that's not what it's saying. There's, there's three sins that Onan committed. Number one, he was disobedient to his father. His father told him to take care of his daughter-in-law, and he didn't. He wasn't going to do it, he says. At least it tells us here. Also, um, he was rebellious. He wanted to do things his own way. And lastly, he was selfish. He wanted the fun, but no responsibility. And we see this as a ginormous, ginormous problem in our world today. Millions upon millions upon millions of babies are aborted. I want to say all of them are aborted because people don't want them, but a large portion of them are. And <laughs> it's a wicked thing in God's eyes. That's what um, Proverbs says, that he hates the shedding of blood, uh, innocent blood, rather. And there's forgiveness, if, if that has been part of your life. Um, but here, very specifically, Onan was just being wicked, was just being selfish, and he didn't want to provide a child for Tamar. He didn't care about her. That's like the big problem. He didn't care anything about her. her. He was selfish. He only wanted what was good for him. And so, verse 10, And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. <laughs> That's intense, yes. This is an intense chapter. God killed him for his wickedness, his selfishness. Verse, <clears throat> verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brother. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So he says, Okay, I have a third son. Wait for him to grow up, and then, and then you can have him as a husband. Um, I'll call you when we're ready. And then under his breath, he's saying, like, never. Right? Because two of his sons have just dropped dead because they've been associated with this woman. But it's not the woman's fault, if you notice. It's the two men. It's, it's kind of interesting. He's acting just like his father, Jacob, or in how Jacob was tricked, remember? Uncle Laban said, yeah, you can have Rachel, but uh, you got to work for me seven years. Work seven years. He gets tricked. He gets Leah. Right? And then he ends up with two wives, Rachel and Leah. But here, Judah's saying, yeah, we'll, we'll send him when we're ready. But he planned not to. It says that at the end of the chapter that he wasn't going to send her. Excuse me, him, the, the last son. Because he was probably afraid that one, two... There's a pattern going on. This son is probably going to die too. So verse 12. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted. And went up to the sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend Hira the Dolomite. So this is 
after, it doesn't give us a specific time. It just says, now in the process of time, Judah's wife dies. And Judah is now hanging out with his old friend, Hira. So the first time um, was when Hira, he was with Hira and he finds his wife. Then Hira comes with him and he is along with him to shear his sheep. And the place that they end up is Timnah. And um, in the Bible, there's another account of this location, Timnah, and that is Samson. Samson gets his wife from Timnah. So Timnah is also not a good place to get a wife or um, to go looking for one. We're going to see what happens here. So him and his friend are going to shear sheep in verse 13. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, the third son, and she was not given to him as a wife. Wait a minute. This guy's grown up now. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may, be, that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. Like I said, kind of awkward chapter. I said it like four times already, but I don't know. That's all I can say. Um, it's the time of, of shearing sheep. Him and his friend are, are going going past this location that Tamar is at, but also with with Judah is his son, his last grown son. And she obviously recognizes him, recognizes Judah, and that's the third son. So she has devised a plan. What's the plan? Gotta get pregnant. Because it, it, it says here that she asked for a goat, but her, her grand purpose is to get Judah or Judah... Or uh, Shayla. And who is it that she gets? It's Judah, her father-in-law. Tamar was thinking of how she could survive, what she could do in order to have enough food on her table. And, and I'm not getting, making a case for prostitution at all, so just stay with me. She has no husband. She has no children. Father-in-law has lied to her, deceived her. And um, she can't just go and remarry anyone. Like, I'm going, on and going out on a search and I'm going to find someone. I'm going go to I'm go to the marketplace and find someone. That's not how it worked. She couldn't just, oh, I, I, I choose to, to look for someone right now. No, she was under the responsibility and care of her father-in-law. So she's stuck. She's absolutely stuck. And... Um, she was not brought up in the ways of God, that's for sure, the Canaanites. And also, her father-in-law, who's supposed to be a representative of God, is not <laughs> godly at all. And 
her two husbands were not godly at all. So she certainly was not shown a godly lifestyle or how you should live. Um, and this is what she comes up with, the plan that she comes up with. So he goes, uh, Judah goes, and he goes to the prostitute, which he doesn't, it says that he did, he did not know that it was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you, what's the price? Um, he said, what's the price that you'll give me? Or she said, what's the price you'll give me so we can have sex? And verse 17, and he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So like I said, she wasn't after getting a goat. She was after being taken care of for good, not just a goat. Although a goat was what she said would work. And this is an important part. So she said, will you give me the pledge till you send it? Because all the sheep and, and goats are ahead of them, right? And on your way back, just send one when you're coming back. And so she said, he said, what's the pledge that I shall give you? Your signet and your cord and your staff in your hand. So your signet would be your, your ring. And it would um, oftentimes have um, an image or letters to, that rep- would represent your family, your personal belongings. And so um, around a cord, some say they would be hung around the neck and then your staff. So these are important, um, important possessions. And it, it's kind of like, okay, um, you know, we're making a deal and, oh, I, I got to go to the bank. Well, let me, hold your, let me hold your driver's license while you go, okay? Let me hold your passport. Let me hold your social security card. No, I'm just kidding. Um, your, your piece of identification, that's what she's asking for. I want to be able to identify you and when you come back. So, he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on her garments of her widowhood. So, they made the transactions. They had their deal. And verse 20, and Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, Ira, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. So, she re- so he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, there was no harlot in this place. That's, that would be shocking to him, right? Uh, what do you mean there's no, bro- like, yes, there was. They said there wasn't. There, they don't know of anyone. Um, that would be scary for Judah, obviously. So um, it says in verse 23, then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be ashamed, for I sent this young goat and you have not found her. So just let her keep those. (laughs) Just let her keep my driver's license, you know. Um, Okay. Verse 24, about... And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. Uh, I do want to go back real quick to verse, um, where is it at? Verse 23. 
it's it's just interesting that Judah's you know, concerned about being ashamed when he's, you know, didn't care at all what he was doing. He didn't think twice about it, but yet he's concerned about being ashamed or having shame or looking disgraceful. It's just, it's just an interesting point. He slept with a prostitute, yet he's ashamed um, to be in public. But he was willing to do it. And, uh, you know, I think some of us sometimes can feel ashamed for what we do. And I, I love that the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from all of our shame. And, and that's a beautiful truth in the Word of God. So, verse 24 says, at the end of it, after he figures out that he's been tricked, so Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. That's his response. So, yeah, I, you know, I went ahead and did an evil against God, but she needs to be burned. Right? She tricked me. Wait a minute, Judah. Didn't you trick her? Right? That's what he did. He tricked her. Because he said, I'll give you the third son, but he was not going to do it. Burn her. That's his response. Burn her for what she has done. In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 12 and 14, it speaks of the payment or the consequence of a sin like this. There's um, like incest and things of that nature. It talks about this in the book of Leviticus. And this, these laws weren't given to about 450 years after what we're reading right here. So um, there's a lot of practices in the book of Genesis that were made law, um, came the law, but it wasn't about 450 years later. It's just interesting. About 34 practices in the book of Genesis were made into laws. So, because um, some might say, oh, you know, they didn't have the law yet, you know. Yeah, but they, God was with them. God was speaking to them. They knew right from wrong. They had conscience. They had a conscience. Anyways, this, this verse reminds me of John chapter 8, if you are familiar with this account. John chapter 8, they catch, the Pharisees catch a woman in adultery. And they say, Jesus, basically, Jesus, we need to stone her. The law calls to stone her. And he says, which one of you without sin, or, or the one who has not sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone. And he had written things in the ground. It doesn't tell us what he wrote down. It's possible that he could have been writing down their sins because they leave from the eldest to the youngest one by one. And after they all leave, Jesus asks the woman, where are your accusers? And he says, and she says, I, haven't, I don't have any. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Isn't that beautiful? Yes? No? <laughs> because we have an accuser. Did you know that? The Bible says we have an accuser, the accuser of the brethren. He tells us and he makes sure as we he makes sure as we know. Man, look at the mess you've made. You're sick. You're disgusting. Seriously? 
You're filthy. You're nasty. And you want to pray? You want to raise your hands to God? You want to tell others about Jesus? Anyone had that experience before? Really condemned, accused? I love Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I'm learning to practice it. But there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I love the end of the chapter of Romans 8. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more, he has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? That's powerful, isn't it? That's beautiful, isn't it? The accusations, the, the sins that we have committed, the wicked things that we have thought, that we have did, the selfish things, the rebellious things that we have done, we stand before God faultless, forgiven. Because of what we've done? No, absolutely not. Man, what do we deserve? We deserve to be like the two first sons. Crushed, smashed. That's what hell is. God's wrath being poured out. You paying for the sins that you've committed. But what does he give to those who believe in Christ? Mercy. And grace. It's, it's just comical because Judah's saying, burn her for what she's done. But it's like Jesus said, how can you take a speck out of someone else's eye when you've got a giant log sticking out of your eye? You've got this giant beam coming out. Oh, yeah, yeah, you have a lot of sin over you and you. You've got this giant beam coming out of you. Oh, yeah, let me get to the speck. That's ridiculous. We don't, it's, Jesus is not saying we don't hold each, hold each other accountable or say that is wrong, that is right. No, he's saying we don't condemn people. He alone has that place and position. So, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom this, these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. I like what John Corson said. He said, the Tamar cam, comes out and says, doesn't this look familiar with a big J on it? Right, Judah, J for Judah. And imagine they're like, oh, the gulp he must be. Uh, uh. <laughs> it's just, it's just kind of, it's kind of funny. It's not funny, but it's funny. Um, verse 26. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not but." I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. See, that's where it says that he didn't intend to give his third son to Tamar. He says, I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm very wrong. And not only am I wrong, but Tamar herself is more righteous than I. Even though she's tricked me and, you know, that, you know, 
got a baby by her father-in-law. Uh, father-in-law. She's more righteous than I. <laughs> I would say that takes a lot for him to say, and isn't it hard to say you're wrong? Because <laughs> of the pride inside of us. <clears throat> I was wrong. I, I was wrong. And the thing is, you know you're wrong, but you're like struggling to say you're wrong. How, how does that happen? It's called pride. Yeah. So he recognizes the wrong that he has. He has done, which is important. That's what God tells us to do. Recognize the wrong we've done. Psalm 51 is a great chapter in the Bible to just read over, think over when you know you've done something wrong. Against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. That's what Psalm 51 says. Cleanse me, renew me, refresh me, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So, verse 27. Now it came to pass at that time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly, and she said, How did you break through this breach be upon you? Therefore his name was called Perez, which is literally breach. Afterwards his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zera. So, about three months later, after he wants to killed Tamar, she is ready to give birth, knows that there's two two children in there, two boys, and one of them sticks his hand out first, and so the person helping him deliver the baby says, this is the first one, let's wrap a scarlet thread. Um, but he didn't come out first. That's why... Um, that's why his, uh, his brother's name is, you broke through, you broke out. Okay, that's, that's what his name means. So it's kind of cool, kind of interesting. You see throughout the Old Testament, mainly, that there is um, a, it's a, it's a theme, it's a symbol, and it's right here. It's a scarlet thread. Oh, this is, this is the fun part. This is the cool part. The scarlet thread is the genealogy or the line of Christ, how how we see Jesus and his family line throughout the Old Testament. And right here, put the scarlet thread on his his wrist. In the book, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 3, we're given the count of um, the genealogy of Jesus, one of them, and both of these sons are in there. Perez and Tamar. And I love, love, love what Chuck Smith says about this verse, chapter 29. As we read the Gospel of Matthew, it gives us the genealogy of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. The line happened to come through Perez, the son of Judah, and Tamar. The next woman listed is Rahab, the harlot in Jericho, then Ruth, the Moabite, and the last and the fourth woman named in the line of Christ, is Bathsheba, the wife of David, who was formerly, formerly the wife of Judah. 
four women are named in Christ's genealogy, each of them outside the Jewish race and with rather shady past. This speaks to me of God's grace. Though we may not have the most honorable past or just plain ashamed of as we look back, God does not disqualify us or kick us out. He would rather wash us, forgive us, and then use us as trophies of his grace. Four of the women who are in Jesus' genealogy, they're all not from the Jewish nation, and three of them have done some bad things, <laughs> some wicked things, have sinned against God. And that speaks of God's grace. So mercy is not getting what you do deserve, getting punished. And grace is getting something, um, did I say that backwards? Grace is getting something, something, something. <laughs> uh, something as Christ wants. There's a piece I'm missing. But the point is, mercy is getting what you don't deserve, and grace is getting something that you don't deserve either. There it goes. Something that you don't deserve. That's grace. <laughs> you get it. I think you're there. I'm trying to be there. Um, we see God's mercy throughout this chapter, and we also see God's grace. In chapter 44 of the book of Genesis, you'll get there eventually, in verse 32 and 33, Judah, this man has done wicked things who has not live for God, who wanted to sell his brother, he has a chance. God really is obviously the one. At the time of redemption, he's the one that stands up for his little brother, Benjamin, because they, they all hated Joseph. They probably ha hated Benjamin just as much, right? Because he's from Rachel, not from Leah. And He says, go ahead and send Benjamin. Let me be the slave. Let me, let me stay here. And this speaks of God's forgiveness and his redemption. And some of us, some of us, probably a lot of us in this room, have done some dishonorable things, have done some ungodly, wicked things. And many of you have had a chance to redeem that by God's grace. Or maybe are still redeeming or are currently being redeemed right now and getting a, a chance to do that. And it's so interesting, and it just speaks to God's grace that God didn't choose Joseph. Remember Joseph? Oh, you, you know, we're in him right now. We're learning about him, but there's not one fault with Joseph, not one at all. He does everything right every time. And why didn't God choose Joseph's lineage? Because he wanted to choose Judah's lineage. Because he wanted to show that he is abounding, he's overflowing with grace and mercy. Also in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he takes on that title. He takes on... he. He associates with Judah. He comes from Judah's line. And that is, that is a message in itself, right? If, if you ever feel like, oh, I don't feel good enough, or I feel 
too guilty, or I have messed up too much, or I have done wrong too much. I can't serve God. I can't live for God. I have to be in timeout my whole life. No, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Um, called condemnation, but um, God doesn't want us to live in, in that way. This isn't the end of Judah's story is, is another way to, to put it. So how should we respond to this chapter? <laughs> this awkward and tense chapter. There's a verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. God's, <laughs> if you read the book of Romans, it says, now that we've died to sin, shall, shall we live in it? Certainly not. Now that we're set free, are we going to go back into it? We shouldn't. We don't have to. That's the reason why Christ set you free, is so that way you could be free, right? And he came to set the captives free so they could be free, not so they could be slaves still. I also love this point of the Bible. There's only one hero in the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed this, noticed this so, far, so far. So, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Very simple command, one, one and only command. Don't eat of this fruit. Launched the whole world into decay and death. Noah, he got drunk. Abraham, he acted cowardly and lied about his wife. Jacob, deceived his father to get the birthright. Moses became angry, disobeyed God, struck the rock. Gideon was fearful. David, man's, man after God's own heart, he was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a liar. He was a disobedient when he took the census. New Testament disciples, they were prideful. They argued who was the greatest. They lacked faith. Remember when Jesus calmed the storm, they're in a storm, we're all gonna die. And... Jesus says, what I'm concerned about is your faith. I'm not concerned about dying. I'm not concerned about the storm. I'm concerned about your faith. They lacked understanding of Jesus' teachings. They wanted to prohibit the children from coming to Jesus. Remember that? They lacked power to cast out demons. They sliced off ears. Um, they fell asleep during prayer. They all forsook him when they came to arrest Jesus. Remember that? Except John, he was with Jesus. That's what, he thought. That's what it says. The New Testament church, read the book of 1 Corinthians. They had many problems, serious problems, just like what we're reading here. The book of Revelation, the first four chapters, talk about fundamental problems in the church, how they left their first love, how they were faking it, how they were not living for God. There's only one hero of the Bible, <laughs> And that is Jesus. That's the truth. That's for sure. God is bigger than our sin. God can forgive us. God can cleanse us. God can restore us. And God can use us. This is a beautiful, beautiful section of verse. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love 
with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you ever pause? Do you ever pray? Do you ever sit down, meditate, and say, like David in Psalm 8, who am I? I don't deserve any of this. I would strongly encourage you, even today, at some moment, some point, think about God's mercy, Him stretching out his hand, not crushing us, not sending us to hell, which we deserve, saving us. And think about his grace, giving us families and friends and a house and that's just a physical things, but spiritual, what has he done for you? And it, it, especially if you find yourself in a grumpy mood or a bad attitude or just feeling out of it, highly encourage you to do that. Because we don't deserve anything. What, what we do deserve is bad. It's, for the wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. But he is willing to give us life. An abundant life at that. So the worship team can come up. We will pray. Um, if any of you do not know Christ, do not know forgiveness, do not know redemption, do not know the cleansing of sin, you can talk to me after. And the rest of, all of us can just pray together as we'll join back in, in song. So, Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace, the abundance of grace that you pour out on us. And I pray, Lord, for those who came into this room who are just struggling with their own sin, that you would give them the power and the freedom to walk in your spirit, Lord, and not fulfilling those desires that they have, the strong, strong, passionate desires, Lord. And um, we thank you for the forgiveness of sin and the mercy that you show to us. We thank you that you don't give up on us, Lord, and that you can... Turn all things for good, Lord. We don't want to live loose lives or live however we want, Lord. But we want to live as living sacrifices. That's what your word says. And we want to be honoring and pleasing to you. Would you give us your spirit, Lord, to just walk faithfully with you? And Would you help us to encourage one another and strengthen one another and lift up one another, those who are... Um, barely making it right now, would you provide peace, Lord, for those who are anxious, for those who are worried, for those who are stressed. Lord, we thank you that you are not far off. We thank you that you're with us right now. And we thank you, Lord, that you came to live inside of us. And we pray, Lord, for an enjoyment 
of our relationship with you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, you didn't hold anything back, but that you given us your word, Lord, to warn us once again, to correct us, to teach us how to live. And we want to praise you, Lord. We want to praise you, Jesus, for being our hero. <laughs> we are definitely not the heroes. We are so in need of you. And that would be every single day. And help us not to forget that. Help us not to be prideful thinking that we got the strength. We got this. But you got this. Jesus, and help us to walk with you, to live for you, and to love you. And thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.